Welcome to season four of Business Book Talk. I'm your host, Bob Garlick. This year, we have even more great books to help you excel in business and life. You can search for book topics and themes at businessbooktalk.com or subscribe using your smartphone for great content on the go. Hi, everybody. It's Bob here again, and I've got a book in front of me called Relevance with Andrea Coville. And I just realized that when I talked to your answering machine earlier today, you're not called Andrea, you're called Andy. Is there a reason for that? I think so. I think my parents just started calling me that from day one. They, <laughs> and um, they named me after a skier. Her name was, I think her name was um, Andrea Lawrence, and she was a, a skier at the time I was born. And I think they liked the name, but mm. then everybody just immediately called me um, Andy. And I've never, I, I know I'm in trouble when someone calls me Andrea. <laughs> you know, it sounds very formal. Oh, it sounds so much like me. The only people that call me Robert was my mom when she's, when she's Robert. Uh-oh, here it comes. I've left something around. <laughs> I know. Which is, you know, it's quite apropos because the book is called Relevance, and that is a, you know, the relevance of your name is by calling you Andrea. If if I really didn't know you, I said, hey, Andrea, really nice to meet you. Andrea this, Andrea that. And in the back, you might say, I'm not Andrea. I'm Andy. Right. Why aren't you calling me by my real name? Right. And I think it to, to sum it up, that's kind of what the book's about. It's about being able to communicate right. to people in a relevant way. So let's talk about the word relevance because that's what we talk. you talk about at the beginning of the book. Let's define it for people because I think one of the big things with languages is people use a word, uh, but they don't understand that the word that they're using may have a different meaning for the other person. Right. Well, that's thank you for the opportunity. Well, it's, you know, the dictionary defines relevance as being practical and especially social applicability and special, especially social applicability. Mm. So it, it, there is, it, there's just this practical functionalness about relevance, um, something that resonates in a very practical sense with people. Um, and it's just relevant. It just, it just connects. It's simple. Mm. Mm. Now, for people reading this book, how should they tackle it? Should they just go from the beginning, burn all the way through it, or can they skip around? Because you kind of have sections where it's like, hey, if you want to know this, this is the part to read. But do you think they should read the beginning, or, or can they just skip around? I think they could read. What would be fun for them to do is read the executive summary to start. Mm. Um, and that it kind of gives you a sense of what the premise is, what the premise is behind our research, kind of what's going to be covered in the book. Look at the table of contents and then, and then skip around. I mean, it's, it's, I think the, the, it's not like you have to read chapter one to, for, you know, to under, to, for, to, for chapter two to make sense. Mm. It, 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 they are discrete chapters in its own. The, the, the one that um, I would suggest they do read, though, the very beginning is just the dimensions of relevance when we explain our methodology and what we call the relevance egg, mm -hmm. because that is um, that kind of sets up the argument as well. So I'd say the executive summary and chapters three and four would be a good start. Okay, cool. Now, let's take a look at chapter three, because I, I, I think that's very relevant. You know, it's going to be going over the whole, the whole show. We're going to be overusing yeah. the word relevance. Um, quantitative, one size does not fit all. That is so true. Do people tend to, you know, oversimplify their situation and say, ah, this will work, and trying to make a square peg go into a round hole? 
I do. I I think that's very very true. I think people make it's very easy. I shouldn't sound make it sound like it's accusatory, but I think people make assumptions that what they've done in the past has worked, and they tend to group people and cluster people um, in a in a in broadly rather than thinking about how how micro segmented we have all become mm. in terms of audiences. I always you know it's easy to think the world thinks the way you do, you know, what's of interest to you. And it's, it's really not true. And you only find that when you just start looking at different, you know, conversations that happen by various segments. The example I love to use is when, you know, you go into a Lululemon store and a 14 year old is buying the headbands and buying something cool to put on their wrist. Then they Snapchat it to their friends while the mom is in there just trying to, you know, find a pair of size eight yoga pants that fit and, you know, that don't, you know, (laughs) that look comfortable and in class. And they're certainly not taking pictures of themselves and sending them to their friends and saying, look at my new yoga pants. (laughs) But it's really easy for maybe a mom to think like, who would want to take a picture of this? You know, Mm. it just shows it's just different for different age groups. Yeah, and I, you know that you made a very interesting point there. You know, there's a teenager in there, and she's buying headbands and, and just accessories and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you think a lot of younger people, because they don't have as much cash flow available to them, tend to buy accessories because they want to buy the brand, but they can't because they just don't have fifty bucks to blow on on a pair of pants, but they can afford the twenty dollar headband, so that's what they buy, just so they can tweet out yeah. about it. <laughs> I think I think like fourteen year olds do that. I think they I think they have like this twenty five or even a twenty dollar threshold. They're really great at ordering Chinese food. They're really <laughs> great at buying headbands and funky necklaces or you know, I think boys, you know, love to like you know, those sneakers that you are able to design yourself. Mm. But those are slightly more substantial purchases, but definitely. And <laughs> there's a whole social aspect to it. It's just every purchase is a social experience, you know, mm. with the young millennials for sure. You know, I think they get a lot of satisfaction. I think, well, for me, I've got a theory is that when you see a product that you really desire, and I'm not saying need or want, but actually desire, there is mm-hmm. there's this thing inside you saying, oh my God, this is amazing. And then you research yeah. it. And when you actually buy it, it's disappointing. It's the lead up to the purchase. So I think a lot of people these days are using social platforms to basically get that feeling back because they get mm. feedback from people. Oh, you're so lucky. Or, oh, that's so beautiful. Oh, I wish I had one. That's a really interesting theory. And I think we're probably spot on. Well, I agree. But, and think about how people you know, how, like with cars or something, mm. when you buy a luxury item, how how much research at least goes into the, the first time you can buy one, how much research goes into it. And I, I wonder how many people are actually disappointed in their first car, you know, like, mm. did it live up to everything they'd hoped it would be? Well, you know, it, it, and and I, I'm going to harp back to, to relevance, and, and I think cars, because it's such a North American thing, I mean, it's a global mm-hmm. thing, of course, but it, in yep. the, I mean, there's been books mm-hmm. written about it, the, the love yep. affair of a car. When I got my first car, it wasn't, and I got the car, and, oh, this is great, I'm driving around, it makes me feel different. Um, mm-hmm. But then it was accessorizing the car became the new big thing. It was my right. space. You know, I was living mm-hmm. with my parents. So it was yeah. my zone. It's the first time, because even your bedroom still belongs to your parents. But if it's your car, when you're in your car, that's your space. Now, my question yeah. is, is that ultimate relevance? 
Um, I think when you make a personal connection, yes, to something that, you know, the brand represents yourself or you see more of yourself in your experience with the brand, the mm-hmm. car, I absolutely think so because I think you're connecting on so many levels. Like you're, it's, it's rationally, it's like, this is my car, I have to pay for the gas, but actually I can drive it pretty much anywhere I want to as long as I can, you know, afford the gas that goes in it. Mm. Um, there's this whole sensory side of it, as you just described. It has the stuff in it. I've accessorized, I've got the, you know, I've got the right radio in it, I've got the stickers on the windows, whatever it is, you know, that it makes, I just love my car, I put something on the wheel. I think there's a whole sense of community, too, um, that you can either be in, you know, if you're by a third-hand Volvo is your first car, heck, you're you're part of the Volvo community, and you you love that car, you know. And then, and then I also think that a car really expresses your, your personal values. You know, there's a, there's, you know, is it, good on gas mileage. I mean, whatever is personally relevant to you at the age of 18 or 20 when you get your first car, you know, can you throw your skis in it? Can you drive from to whatever city you want to go to and, you know, throw your, you know, kids can fit in the back and go to a concert. I mean, those things are all really, really important. And you'll never forget. I bet bet most people could remember what their first car was, the make and model. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think for um, any... Any organization, any business that um, has long lifespan products, car being a classic, um, I think smartphones is an, the new classic. Uh, how how can a company, because really this is what your book's about, how can a company build towards that type of relevance? I think that we have, I think that we have it's very easy, especially with consumer brands, to, to, to do what you mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is just to assume, you know, broad, make very broad assumptions on mm. what people and consumers want. And I think that it's to, to create that kind of relevant connection, you really have to think about how can you reach people. And, you know, I, I, I kind of complain about this a little bit in the book, or I try to make a point about this, that analytics and data are really, really important, but they're only as good as the insight that goes into the funnel, right? Because mm-hmm. if in order to be relevant, you have to, as you start out this conversation, you have to, it has to create something that breaks through just all of the noise. And I think with, a, you know, a smartphone, for example, or even if you look at a brand like Chobani that has done a fantastic job about speaking to people that um, look at yogurt as being healthy. It's, you know, it's the yogurt of choice for many just, you know, athletes, for example, or people that consider themselves athletes. It's, you know, it's part of a sort of a training diet. They, you know, add so much more to the experience of buying a, you know, a yogurt. They, they sort of become this wealth of information for athletes or wannabe athletes. And I think they've, been able to, through their content, created relevance to um, to different cohorts. I think I think smartphones really need to do that because you know, essentially, customers are very very fickle. You know, especially <laughs> either with phone service or smartphones, they they change. You know, they change. Their screens break, and they say, well, maybe I'll do something different, or there's a better price, and I can get more features or more functionality. Let's check this out. You know, so. I think you have to, I think you really have to do a lot of work thinking about what is relevant to many segments. 
You know, I when I'm working with clients and uh, one of the things I have to try and get them to understand is they cannot do broad communication anymore. The the day mm-hmm. of... Right. Well, you, right. you still can if you get a billion dollars, but nobody's got a billion dollars mm-hmm. in their marketing budget. And if they do, please call me now uh, <laughs> because I'd love to work with you. Um, Could have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We could do so much more with that billion dollars. Uh, and... It's still, it's like pulling teeth with people because they're so petrified that they're going to miss out. They'll say, no, no, we, we have, we'll communicate once to 5,000 people. And I say, no, let's communicate five, t- five times to 1,000 people because you have a higher chance of actually getting through to them. But in your book, you actually talk about you can be pounding away and, and be louder and, and all you're doing is letting people know that you're trying to communicate to them unless you're relevant. They don't, they're not even going to bother listening or taking your message seriously. Right. I, I, that's true. And, I, you know, just volume, volume doesn't get, get through to people. And I think that was the other part I was thinking about a lot when we began to write the book, which mm. was um, you don't need volume when you pr- have a pretty good instinct into what your existing customers want and what you think your future customers are going to want and your future customers, you can take a lot of cues from your existing client base, you know, and I think a lot of people just, at least I've found in my experience, people develop products sometimes in a vacuum. It's a very R and D driven process and it hasn't been a customer driven process. And, you know, I think Apple was the, the company that was a master at that saying, well, Customers don't know what they want. We know what they want, you know, and they've done a really good job at that. But I think there are more examples of companies, nine nine times out of ten, that do understand what customers want and they do a really good job. Like Patagonia, for example, it's a classic, you know, jacket brand, but they, they have either they, they're known for their quality, their simplicity. They've got a very, very loyal base and they grow it um, and their future customers are going to be you know, future outdoor, you know, you know, generations of outdoor adventurers Mm -hmm. that really want that quality and that fabric. They're not trying to be, you know, a fashion accessory like the North Face brand is, you know, to sell to everybody, you Mm -hmm. know, and with, so they've, I think that's an example of, of Patagonia doesn't need to shout loudly at everybody in the world, but they have a a loyal and expanding and a, a real quality customer base. You know, that that is so true. Um, a lot of times when I have a, uh, like I'll watch something on YouTube and it's like, wow, I want that product. And then I sit back and say, why do I feel this way? I try to analyze why I, you know, I'm not your average consumer, but I, I'm trying to find out why, why did that work and th- th- everybody else hasn't yeah. worked for the last three months. And one thing that really hit home to me was honesty and being really upfront, and there is this amazing YouTube video. I'll put, try and put find it and put it in the show notes for this particular interview. But the guy basically comes up and he says, "Hi, I make the best bags in the world, but a lot of people have been ripping off these bags, and I just want to help you do a better job. This is how you can make my bag cheaper." And he mm-hmm. goes through. It's like here's all the different types of leather, and he explains it in amazing detail why these leathers. Um, are cheaper. Of course, they're inferior to what we use, but you know, you could use this, but these are the downsides, da, da, da. And it was basically, he was giving a tutorial lesson to people in China how to rip off his bags. And that was so amazing because what he did is he was so... He the opposite. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and not only that, he was so confident 
about his product that it made mm-hmm. me feel like, well, I want to have a product that I feel confident about. And his bags, mm-hmm. they're not cheap, but you know, if I buy one of his bags, that's it for the rest of my life, and then I can pass it on to my children. Mm-hmm. So in yeah. the long run, it's actually a cheaper bag than buying 10 bags over, or 20 bags over the lifespan of me using them. And that, to me, was such a great, that's a beautiful example of relevance, because instead of being angry, shouting, saying, stop ripping off, you know, it's, it's junk, it's rip-off, knock-off mm. products, he understood that, you know, there, there's something that would appeal to his audience even more than cost, which was the, you know, authenticity and quality, mm. and making the bet that, you know, 80% of his audience are going to care about that. You know, 20% are always going to, you know, probably won't. But mm-hmm. 80% are, and he showed them how, just by being calm, how inferior um, another product would be by substituting things, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's a beautiful example of relevance. And he did it in a very non-threatening way. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was actually it's quite a lot of fun. And you learned a lot yeah. about how what goes into making a bag. Right, and he, you're invested at that point. Exactly. So he's sort of he's captured people at their values, and he's you know, and he's he's given them a real you know what I would call a sensory experience, which is they they're visually engaged in the process of making that bag. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. cool. Now, in your book, you talk about you know how hard it is to well not. Get, I guess uh, getting relevant is, is, is difficult, but regaining relevance is even harder. Why is that? Well, I think what happens is when you really, um, when you lose relevance, you've often lost customers. Mm. And I think, you know, in general, you don't lose customers unless there's been a significant gap of time when haven't spoken with them or connect with them mm-hmm. and or you know you haven't listened to them and by the by the time people actually switch um, and find your product less relevant it's it's you can still keep your core and you can still fight your way back for sure but you have a longer it's it's just so much easier to keep a happy engaged customer than it is to be on the brink of losing them and have to regain their trust all over again you know mm-hmm. that's you know it's the I guess it's sort of the classic customer value chain, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it does, it, it definitely is possible. It's, you have to work hard. Um, but you, you, can, you can get people back, you can get people back, but you do have to, um, you have to understand why you lost them in the first place. Mm. Um, did it have anything to do with, you know, quality or service um, or just straightforward communications? And then, and then, you know, identify what it is you need to fix and communicate that you're, you know, you're concentrating on these areas and then work really hard to, um, to create content that, you know, that engages them based on understanding what makes them relevant. And you can, you can, you can win people back for sure. If they think you're authentic and honest about it, you know, and I think at that point in time, you really have to also go back to what, what made, you appeal, your product appeal to that person in the first place, you know, if they have associated your your product offering with values, for example, that are very important to them, that's a nice opportunity to say, I haven't lost, we haven't lost our values of quality or, or um, you know, service or mm. delivery of product. Um, and to remind them why you're de- you, only you can develop something that helps them meet their needs in a really unique way. Um, and then, and you get that 
that your product isn't for everybody, Mm -hmm. but it's for people like them and Mm -hmm. try to inspire them again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, you've used a, Several words again and again, conversation, listen, engage. And I think those are three very, very powerful words. Um, Is in today's um, market, is it advisable not to look at your your market demographic as, okay, we want to talk to, you know, 15 to 19-year-olds, blah, 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 blah. That's kind of the old way of thinking. Can we go and start thinking one-on-one yet? Um, I think you can. Um, I think I think sometimes, like, there are different ways to get insights that mm-hmm. allow you to have those one-on-one conversations. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we are in that, in that point. We are at that point of time when people want to be spoken to individually. We have, you know, what's been very interesting to us is this research we've done around conversational relevance, and mm-hmm. it's... So we have a software that allows us to sort of listen in on conversations. Like I can't tell, you know, it's Bob who's in Vancouver um, talking to, a, you know, a friend or a client. I can't, you can't tell that, but you can, you can, you can sort of audit different social media platforms and there's key phrases and words mm. that you can ask the software to recognize. So for example, if you're a luxury brand, you can hear conversations that are going on about Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons, um, a very famous Canadian brand, um, or Hilton, and you can see what people are talking about, Just, and you can look for certain words. Hmm. And we found out, for example, that water temperature and water pressure, the shower, is a, is a conversation that's going on regularly <laughs> on, on online conversations, and it's not something the hotel brands tend to be thinking about. I mean, they, you know, lovely warm towels and, you know, sweet smelling lobbies and impeccable service, but the shower, you know, the shower, the water pressure and temperature <laughs> is a big deal. <laughs> and Ritz-Carlton does a very good job. And people were mentioning online, hey, you got to check out the Ritz-Carlton showers. They're fantastic, you know, mm. and it was, it's that, now that's an example of how you would take that insight and then go to an individual business traveler, for example, and say, you know, we all want, you know, to have a place that just makes us feel, you know, comfortable and rested after a crazy day on the road. There's nothing better to make you feel like home, like a wonderful shower or mm-hmm. feel like you're pampered. And there's a way you could, you know, use that to have very creative individual, con- you know, conversations with, uh, you know, a targeted list of, you know, of, of business travelers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could have so much fun with headlines. Yeah. You could have yep. high, you know, we specialize in high pressure pampering. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's great. Um, you know, it, it, you bring, um, I'm going to use it, you open a huge can of worms with that that statement uh, because it. the more I sit down in, in meetings with people, these days it always seems a seems about quantity we have to quantify we have to we have to find we have to do more research we have to do more data mining are we doing too much of that stuff or is it that we're doing the data mining but we don't know what the heck to do with it i think i think yes yes and yes and i think <laughs> we're not we're not concentrating enough into what we're putting in that we're trying to measure because mm. you know we're it's like computing power you know is and ideas and information and data and processing power is multiplying 
at such a rapid rate every year. I, I don't know about you, but I have a feeling it's not going to become any less complex. I think it's just going to become more and more noisy, and it's just going to be it's going to become more intense. I think the pendulum does swing, and I think there has to be a point in time where people really do care about what they are what they're trying to measure, what, because creativity is something that's very uniquely human. You know, it, it, analytics can't create a, a creative idea. Only mm. a human being can do that, right, mm. and so far, you know. And I think that we have to spend more time thinking about measuring great ideas and seeing how great ideas can, you know, shape and modify behavioral change as opposed just to you know, just to measure, 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 have data, 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 and then try to retrofit creativity based on data. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it, it. There's a balance, but the process, um, the process should be very, I think, holistic. It shouldn't be um, start with the data and then come up with the answers. Or you, sh- you need to imagine things to test, and you need to, and then you need to look at data and then imagine or suppose things from those findings as well. I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it goes back to A-B testing. That seems to be the word, the hot word now in all meetings. Like, should we A-B test this? I hate that. Uh, it's like, dude, why don't we A-B-C-D-E-F test it? You know, what What does that mean to you? Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of verbiage like, oh, snack size sound bites. That's another thing that just drives me <laughs> out of my mind. I mean, it's just. There's a lot of buzzy words. Well, you know, it's uh, that, you know, I had a conversation with one of my clients. I was in there. um, I tend to do hands-on, which means that, like, I'll go and I'll hang out for half a day at my clients uh, and just meet people and chat with them and and doing stuff. So I'm walking down the hallway and the president comes up and he says, oh, Bob, we can't do this meeting now because I've got a press conference that's happening because of a big issue that just happened. I said, oh, okay, excellent. Good for you. Go for it. And uh, he walks away and then he comes back. Do you have any tips? And I said, I said, oh, okay, sure, I can help you. I said, gosh. And uh, he, uh, I, I said, well, what the person that's going to be recording, the interviewer, what they need from you are concise mm. sentences that stop. And, and, and this is what I mean. And then I said, you know, if they ask you a question, answer the question as dynamically as you can by putting in a mm-hmm. fact and then stop and and wait for them to ask you a second question or ask get them to right. because that's what technically that's what they need for the news hour they only need seven seconds and his right. eyes changed he was like oh my god now i mm-hmm. get what i'm supposed to be doing that right. is a perfect example of relevance yes it is a perfect example of relevance and you gave him something that was actionable mm-hmm. and it was immediately practical mm-hmm. you know immediately and exactly, and he won't. He'll never forget it either. He'll and you've changed behavior. I I think he'll use it. I would assume for any future interviews that he does do, he won't forget that advice. Well, if he's lucky enough to run into me in the hall, man, I remind him again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes. you use a very big word there, uh, behavior, and this book uh, touches on it a lot. What? How do we change behavior? Because you know, you go into an organization. You've read this book. Uh, you're Oh, I'm on fire. This is so great. Da da da. How do you change the behavior in your department or in the company to be more relevant? Well, I think like um I think behavior, I think communications can mm. support behavioral change. I don't think it it 
can ch- I don't think anything can change behavior other than an, an indiv- individual themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the points about relevance is, is it possible, if you're trying to change behavior inside an organization, um, is, it, it, is it possible to find common, a common thread or a common motivator or a common aspirational emotion that connects, for example, employees to do something together, even though they might be incredibly different in terms of interests and behaviors and habits. And I think, you know, in most instances, you can find that in that in that generally that could be in, you know, it could be in their health habits, but it could be in the reason why you 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 talked at the beginning of our interview about why mm-hmm. i think if if people have a common a common bond in why like they for example if they're a travel company if they're all united by the love of helping people go to new places that's their why right mm. rather than and if you can use that why as a way to back into things you want employees to do, like to get more healthy or to get more engaged in the company, that's a much more powerful way to support behavioral change than just saying, oh, wow, you know, our population has a 10% risk of, you know, type 2 diabetes. We all must walk at lunch. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you've created the why. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I think that is, irrelevance can help you find the why, which is a common denominator. Hmm. But and it doesn't jump out at you at the beginning. I mean, you. It, that's why you have to have conversations with people and sort them and um, and ask them. Ask them if they want to be called Robert or Bob or you know the, that you have to know those nuances before you can make an you know make a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you. You know, you've been doing this a long time, and, and you've built this theory over years and stuff like that. And you say, okay, you know, I'm going to slap this into a book. You start doing research. You start putting it together. You start organizing yep. it, writing it down. For you, what was the aha moment when it all crystallized for you and you had a personal epiphany? It's like, oh, wow, that's something I've known, but mm-hmm. now I get it in such a, a, a core way. I think you know, the more and more research we've done, and I've seen it recently, we've done a lot of research in financial services firms and also with law firms. Mm. And you can see what's so cool to me is the way human beings, A, it's fascinating when human beings are capable of doing extraordinary things. That to me is like, whoa, you know, they, they, they are, they can change the behavior. They can do something amazing. And it's also nice to see that really important things that you value become more important as, as people get more mature, like relationships matter with your personal banker. You, you know, having a trusted, having a trusted relationship is more important than getting the highest maximum possible return on your investment, mm. you know, on your dividend, you know, that might be really important to you when you're 21 or 40, or you might really care about your, you know, your law firm's client list. You know, when you're 45 and 50 and you, you know, and older, you start really caring about, you know, how is that law firm taking care of me? You know, in Mm -hmm. my lifetime, I work with them. You see really great things like that click in. And that, that's when you, that's when I know, wow, this, this really does, this really is an interesting framework. And I think a very useful framework to kind of fall back on mm. as the world gets crazier and busier and you just plug this in and it kind of reminds you, reminds you to be 
to be relevant, to be socially and practically relevant, to never lose sight of that creative piece, which creates the balance. You know, mm-hmm. it's the why. We all do it. Hmm. We don't do things just, we don't, we don't belong to things just because we want to measure. I mean, there has to be a why, right, to measure. Mm-hmm. Well, there has to be some sort of emotional catalyst. Something. Yeah. How does somebody find an emotional catalyst in their company? And I know that's an incredibly unfair and difficult question, uh-huh. but let's look at something that is so unemotional, like a, a cog in a large machine or a, a uh-huh. you know a, a, a pulp and paper company. I mean, those are companies that are doing a lot of B two B. They're they've got to get they've got to make sales and they got to get stuff up mm-hmm. and, and there's mounting pressure to do this and that and the other thing. So how does a, how's a, how does an unsexy company that's yep. not mobile, not fashion, stuff like that, find their relevance? Well, I think, you know, B2B companies sometimes have the most fascinating, they, you, at, in, the very, in the beginning they seem kind of, they may seem not as sexy as a consumer company, mm. but when you start digging into the problems that, they solve and how they do it. It's fascinating. And I think, you know, there must be, if you're, if you're a paper company, you know, think about all the problems, I guess, if I'm a worker in a, in a factory or I'm, um, I'm thinking about beautiful sheets of linen paper that might be used for certain things that, you know, paper that's used in schools to teach kids around the world that are writing their first drawings and paintings on them. If you can bring to life the problem that, you are collectively solving for your part in that product. I think there's a sense of pride and that really happens in that cog that keeps, you know, the wheels on or keeps the machine running, you know, and allows, you know, a, a mine in a town to work and create jobs for people. When you kind of show how what you're doing at a little scale adds up to something really great, that, that unifies people, and it's fine, and it's telling that story. It's finding how the story all comes together, and then making sure people understand their part in the story because everybody has a really big part in the story. You know, I think you hit it right there on the head. Is it's all about story, and if you have an overly complex story, people can't follow it. I mean, it's uh, no. here's an example: uh, Game of Thrones, awesome thing to watch, but it's so <laughs> complex. <know>. And <laughs> I know, it's I'm, like, oh. I'm, gonna, I'm crazy for that show too. I love it, but it drives you nuts. Like, is. what are they going to do now? Oh no! And uh, right. because of that, I actually find watching shows that are um, a lot simpler to watch uh, very entertaining. Yeah. As right. almost like an aperitif between watching the Game of Thrones, the next episode type of thing, and I think that's very relevant for any organization to understand that uh, it's it's not only about the relevance, but it's the simplicity and and the uh, pureness of the messaging and the story that mm-hmm. relates the relevance to their key customers or to their new customers. I agree. I agree. And it's like when you say Game of Thrones, I, I didn't read the books. I don't know if you did, and I, I probably will now mm-hmm. after seeing this. But, you know, it depends where you enter the story. If you if the first time you see Game of Thrones, someone's hand is getting chopped off, you're like, this is disgusting. This is violence. <laughs> I'm never going to go back and watch yeah. this again. Yeah. But if you sort of stayed with it, you know, you kind of like no one to turn, no one to close your eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... um. It is. It's one of those. It's one of the many phenomena that's happening with communication on on, on mass communication right now, mm-hmm. and right. one of the major thing that that's uh, 
relevant to your book is there's podcasts that are happening where it's a group of people that aren't professionals discussing Game of Thrones or discussing uh, another TV show in depth and it's it's their fan base. Mm-hmm. That is a gift to these organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm curious why other organizations aren't figuring this out and saying, well, why aren't we supporting our fan base? Why aren't we giving them samples? Why aren't we holding their hand and helping them do a better mm-hmm. job? Yeah. Yeah, really good point. <laughs> it's a huge opportunity. It is. Well, I, I think, you know, this is the, the power of a book like yours is if, you know, if you read it and you get your relevance, it enables you to communicate to uh, uh, potential customers, but specifically super fans, this is what mm-hmm. we're all about. And if you get it on that fundamental level, we can help you. Yeah. Right. You can help you. And, you and, and it's also okay to, you know, to trust that, you know, to trust, you know, everybody has something that mm. is, is valuable to another, you know, a brand, an idea, an organization. And you just have to have confidence in it. People just lose confidence. They think they, oh my God, I have to reinvent myself because my competition is doing something better than I am or something Mm -hmm. newer. And, you know, you have to have confidence in the things that made you unique to start with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For all our listeners, um, what could they do today to make their business more relevant? I think just, you know, to sit down and say, when is the last time that I had a really great conversation with one of my clients where I got some really unique insights about, you know, what they love about working with with us now. Mm. But more importantly for them, what's going to be important to them in the future? Just a connection, you know, mm-hmm. um, what's important to you? What's going to keep this relationship really working? I think, and you have two or three of those things, and then the opportunity to share with them the best practices that you get from seeing a collection of customers because you have insights that they you have a knowledge that they don't have. You know, mm-hmm. you have very, very valuable expertise. Once last time you had a conversation with a client when they said that's just fantastic. Thank you for that. It's great work. <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, those are the type of quotes you want to be putting on your LinkedIn account. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That is awesome. Relevance, the power of changing, oh, changing, the power to change minds and behavior and stay ahead of the competition by Andy Coville. <laughs> now that we Thank know you, you, we don't have to call you Andrea. It is Andy. Thanks for coming on the show. You were awesome. It was a true pleasure to meet you. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe, leave comments, or make a request on our website, businessbooktalk.com. See you next week.